Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and it's a pleasure to present the gospel the way Jesus presented it. He never called his gospel anything other than the gospel of the kingdom, and everywhere he went, it says he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, something happened in church history, though, and that message somehow got, shall I say, replaced. I taught high school for a number of years, and uh, at the beginning of Bible class, I sometimes passed out a sheet of paper and had the students write on it why they are Christians. I think without exception, they would write, I want to be a Christian so I can go to heaven. I'd be interesting to know what you would write. <laughs> I never had anybody write on it, I'm a Christian because I want to belong to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. I never had that written on a piece of paper. And that's interesting that that somehow is not in the forefront of people's thinking because that's what Jesus always taught. In fact, in, Matthew, in Acts chapter 1, the 40 days before he went back to glory, it says he spent the whole 40 days speaking to them of the kingdom of heaven. So we want to talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, billboard callers, I answer that number on the billboard of 83 for truth. The cam has many billboards throughout the country. And uh, they asked me... Uh, uh, what is the difference between what you believe and what most people believe? And this is how I answer them. I say, most gospel preaching that you hear, at least the popular gospel I hear, is you need to get saved so you can go to heaven when you die. I'm a Christian because I'm excited about getting heaven to earth while I live. <laughs> and that's the difference. That's the difference. And it's, it's so interesting that the gospel got changed very early in church history. In fact, listen to the Apostles' Creed. I, the, and this was done in about A.D. 250, uh, first, third century. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. That's good. His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. What? There's a whole section of the gospel missing right there. N.T. Wright calls it the empty cloak of the gospel. You have the first two chapters of Matthew, have the last two chapters of Matthew referenced there, and here you have 23 chapters in between. And yet, before Jesus went to the cross, in John 17, he says... I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. People sometimes say, do you believe in the finished work of Christ? And I say, which one? There were two finished works of Christ. The one was his ministry and teaching. That most of, the, of what we have in Matthew and Luke and the Gospels. And then he went to the cross to make that life possible. And then that was a finished work. But that first finished work, that whole section of the Bible is somehow missed as to its significance. Jesus began his ministry by this statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right there. He didn't say, repent if you want to go to heaven. That is true. I don't want anybody to leave this meeting tonight saying I don't believe that statement. I do believe that we need to be prepared to go to heaven when we die. But that's not where the emphasis was when Jesus began his ministry, and it was never the emphasis through his entire ministry. 
He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You are going to participate in the kingdom of heaven. Six verses later, after calling his first disciples, his first four disciples, it says, he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the, the Lord's Prayer, and, and it ends with that too. Uh, and the, Lord, the Beatitudes do. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and it ends. Thy kingdom, thine is the kingdom. It's just kingdom the whole way through. Jesus uh, <clears throat> referred to the kingdom at least 124 times in his teaching. Like I said, that's all he ever called the gospel. I challenge you, go home and read through the gospels, and where it mentions that Jesus preached, it'll say he preached the kingdom. And uh, one time he gave the parable of the soils, and he talked about the seed. Be interesting to know what you think he meant the seed to be. Now, in some of the gospels, he does say the seed is the word of God. But in Matthew, he says the seed is the word of the kingdom. And later in that chapter, he says the seed is the children of the kingdom. Jesus wanted a kingdom of heaven on this earth. It's what God always wanted. In the Old Testament, he wanted a nation who would show to all the nations what a kingdom looks like, whose God is the Lord. That's what he wanted. He wanted, he wanted an exhibit. That's what he still wants. The queen of Sheba came to visit that kingdom. And we know it wasn't in very good shape because it fell apart when Solomon died. But even in its diminished state, whatever was going on there that shouldn't have been going on, she still said, what people on this earth are so blessed? What nation has laws that are so just? This is more than what I expected, twice as much as what I expected, even though it wasn't everything it should have been. Then we come into the New Testament. Listen to this, what Peter has to say, which has Old Testament language. He's speaking now of the kingdom of heaven on earth, which I'm going to equate with the church. Some people don't like to make that equation, but I, I think that's very clear in the scriptures that that's what Jesus had in mind. And in fact, I'll quote Mark chapter uh, 9, verse 1. He says, there are people standing here that shall not see death until they see the kingdom come in power. Now, a little bit later in that chapter, it has the Mount of Transfiguration, and some people who don't want to call the church the kingdom uh, will say, well, that was about the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, I'm sorry, you can read that if you want to, but I don't see the kingdom coming in power there. I see something wonderful happening, but I don't see the kingdom coming in power with the Transfiguration. I think it was Pentecost. And I think Jesus is clearly saying the kingdom is going to come in power at Pentecost. Uh, <clears throat> so, here's Peter. I was quoting Peter. Listen to this. This sounds like God was talking about Old Testament Israel. He's talking to us. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, a lot of people, when they talk about the kingdom, they're talking only about the fact that I obey the king. Many Christians don't. So that's good. I, that's wonderful. But a kingdom is a society. It's not an individual. And so when you say kingdom, you're talking about a society of people. Guy Hirschberger used to like to call it the society of the redeemed. What a society looks like when everybody obeys the king. And so we're talking now about a corporate group, and that's the burden of my, my message to our churches, because the gospel has become very individualistic. 
It's all about, I want to get saved so I can go to heaven. In fact, did you notice the creed? I believe, I this, I this. That's so different from the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In us, as it, they're all plural pronouns. And uh, something happened. I'm not sure what it was. But it, got, it became a save me gospel. And I think that has come into our churches. And I'm here to call us back to the kingdom teaching. Jesus wants not just individuals who are trying individually to get to heaven, but people who have invested their whole life in making this little group a beautiful example like the kingdom of Israel was supposed to be to show to the world what the whole world would look like, what a community what the world community would look like if everybody did what this congregation is doing. Amen. All right. Now, part of the problem is we're so scattered. Uh, there was a time when the church was not scattered. They were in the cities. Did you know the church was an urban movement? Our people love to live in the country, and I do. I don't want to live in the city, but it was a city movement. And they literally were living close enough that they could break bread from house to house, and people could see them on a daily basis fellowshipping together. And so... <clears throat> I just want to just introduce it that way. Uh, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is used at least 124 times in the New Testament. Jesus was never led, misled by marginal meanings of words. If he said kingdom, he meant a society. He didn't mean individual people trying to get to heaven. He meant a society of people who show what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed the king. In Luke 4, verse 43, he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities, for therefore am I sent. That, he was sent to preach that message. And he said, this gospel, the kingdom, shall be preached to the whole world, and then shall the end come. But it's basically the save me gospel that got preached to the world, not the gospel of the kingdom. Can you imagine what would have happened if when the gospel went to Russia a thousand years ago, it would have included the gospel of the kingdom? People who do not accumulate wealth, they share it. There's equality. People who do not fight. The Marxists would have had no appeal. Communism as we know it would have never been able to win the hearts of the people because they already would have been. In fact, when I describe what the kingdom of God looks like, a caller on the billboard sometimes says, I bet you voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> You know why they say that? Because the kingdom of God is a demonstration of the equitable kingdom that God intended. And so when you talk to them about sharing wealth and people, how they treat each other, forgive and so on, it sounds like socialism. And it is. But the socialism, when pursued by the secularist, does not deal with selfishness. And so it always ends in a nightmare of a few elites making everybody else equally miserable while they pocket the cash. And so I tell them, if you're going to pursue see, that's why this is such a powerful message, because everybody in the world wants to live in an equitable society. And that's what the church should have demonstrated. That's what the church should have invited them into. And that's what they should have experienced when they came into the church. Finally, the desire of my heart for an equitable society, I am able to experience. The Marxists promised that. They won one-third of the world with that promise and never delivered on it. 
Suppose the church had promised that, and they'd have formed little colonies of heaven all over the world. So people could look in and see the equitable society that down deep in their heart they would like to experience, and they would say, what is this? And they would inquire, and they would find out how this kingdom, the, how that reality happens, how it happens through Christ, how Jesus deals with our selfishness, and how he fills us with his spirit and gives us the power and the enablement and the wisdom to live in the way God intended for us all to live. This is the passion of my heart, to preach the message as Jesus preached it, and to have people focus finally not on themselves, the Save Me gospel has people focused on themselves. When I was a boy growing up, that's all I thought about. Am I going to go to heaven when I die? That's all I thought about. It was about me. And Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. And many of my colleagues growing up are lost today. The gospel they were pursuing was a selfish gospel. And they weren't able to continue. And I'll talk about that probably a little bit later. So it's this wonderful gospel, the kingdom. Uh, I already talked about the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> well, let's uh, talk a little bit about um, the old, what God had in mind from the very beginning. Let's turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> I think if we can ever get this focus back to the, again, and it was lost early in church history, I would say the Anabaptists reclaimed it. They, they preached this message of the kingdom. They had this great vision of churches demonstrating the society God always intended. And, uh, and then something happened, and we lost it as well, somewhat. I think somewhat through the Protestant influences that came into our church at the, uh, uh, over a century ago, they were preaching a Save Me gospel. Uh, and uh, we barred a lot of their rhetoric and a lot of their thinking. And, of course, a lot of revival preaching was you need to get saved so you can go to heaven. The gospel songs were written for evangelistic purposes. That's all about pretty much about getting saved so you can go to heaven. And then, of course, we had dispensational teaching that put the kingdom in the future. And all of that was going on in the last century. And I think we sort of adopted the rhetoric and thinking of a very individualistic salvation. And now we're wondering why the church is struggling so much with individualism. <laughs> and I'll talk a little bit about that at the end. <clears throat> All right. God's original purpose, verse 26 of Genesis 1. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Dominion. That's rule. It's God's purpose to have man in a place where he has influence and uh, experiences this. So let's turn to what kind of rule was this to look like? Let's turn to Exodus 19.6, which is the first usage of the word kingdom. Exodus 19.6. So when you leave this weekend, my purpose is to have you focused on the kingdom of God, not yourself. You see... God cannot have a redeemed society unless he has redeemed people. So obviously, your personal redemption is extremely important. But it's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. God wants a redeemed society, so he redeems individuals, but most people stop there. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed by grace. Oh, that's wonderful. 
But that's a means to an end. And I'd like to get your thinking to the end. And when I leave, what I would like to see is this congregation become passionate about making this congregation a pristine example of what a society looks like whose God is the Lord. For the whole community to see that. (laughs) That's that's this is a kingdom perspective. (laughs) That's a perspective I want you to have when we're finished this weekend. All right. So what does he say in Exodus 19? He says. Now, therefore, we're starting in verse five. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests unto me. This is not our kingdom. This is all being done with the focus on the king. And we're a kingdom of priests, all right? We are mediating God's grace to a world around us. Uh, This is not the absolute kingdom of God. I think where some uh, of the people that I've talked to in the past, and I could name some of them, wonderful Bible teachers, who hesitated to equate the church and the kingdom of God because they were thinking of the absolute kingdom where everything's perfect. This is not the absolute kingdom. Jesus did not have to wash the absolute kingdom and sanctify it by his blood. (laughs) This is not a perfect kingdom. But it's a credible kingdom because when mistakes are made, if it works the way it should, there's repentance and realignment with the kingdom. And we keep pursuing the ideal. And people looking on don't see a perfect kingdom, but they see a credible picture of what society could be if everybody obeyed the king, if the church functions the way it should. Ye shall be a kingdom of priests unto me. All right? Um, God never abandoned this purpose. That's what he wanted in the Old Testament. And I quoted you the verse from Peter. That's what he still wants. The emphasis is on the corporate expression of God's redemption, not just the individual expression. And when we stop there, we have made that an end in itself. And that does not end well and hasn't been ending well for many churches. So this is the theme of the Old Testament. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you of a great nation. And you will be a redemptive force to all generations. That was God's original purpose. And let's look at some verses that show what he had in mind for Israel. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to look at the promises he made to this nation. Keep therefore, verse 6, keep therefore and do them. He's talking about his judgments and his laws. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. See what he wanted? Which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call him upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before thee this day? And like I said, the queen of Sheba came and she, she said that. She said exactly what, what God said they would say about this nation. 
Uh, let's turn to another passage, chapter 26. Verses 17 uh, through 19. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people as, see, I told you, Peter says a peculiar people. The, the, the language there in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 is just is so reminiscent of everything God said to Israel, which, which really strengthens my belief that that's the parallel he wants here in our uh, corporate expression of the gospel. All right. To be a, he's avouched to you, you're going to be a peculiar people, a very favored people, very special people. As he hath promised thee that thou shouldest keep all his commandments and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God as he hath spoken. So, and I had Psalm 145 here too, but you've already read that. But he says in chapter 28, this will only happen if you don't veer to the right or to the left. If you keep all my commandments, then you will see this wonderful uh, vision of what a nation looks like whose God is the Lord. Now, that's the Old Testament. Let's go over into the Gospels. What do we find there? Of course, I've already said Jesus always called his gospel the gospel of the kingdom, and we could look at many references. Uh, <clears throat> but I want to look at some of the apostles. Let's look at what Philip preached. Let's look at Acts 8, verse 12. Now, he's down in Samaria preaching. And it says in verse 12, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So that was his message. His message was the kingdom. And I would ask you, these were Jewish, well, the Samaritans weren't, but many of the people who heard this gospel were Jewish people. What would they have thought? Well, in their mind, the kingdom of God was a day when people would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, hooks, and everybody would relate the way they're supposed to. Uh, exactly what I've been describing. When they heard Jesus say kingdom of heaven, that's the society they would have pictured. All right. Uh, let's look at what Paul preached. Turn to Acts 19. Verse 8, <clears throat> he's here now in Ephesus, and it says, He went into the synagogues and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. So that's what he preached. Let's turn to chapter 20. He's taking leave of the Ephesian elders, and what does he say when he's leaving? Well, he says in verse 25, and now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. <laughs> so there he is. Well, let's go to the end of his ministry. What was he preaching at the end? Let's turn to chapter 28. <clears throat> he comes to Rome. The Jews come to meet him. And it says in verse 
23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. So there it is. Let's go to the very end of the book. Verse 30. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hard house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God. Now this is interesting to me because in all my growing up years, I never heard a message that would have given anything of that impression. Now maybe the churches, other churches were different. I'm just talking about the church I grew up in. The sermon was a basic salvation, save me gospel. I never heard a sermon on the kingdom of God, never, in all my growing up years. This, I, I only got into this when I started studying Anabaptist literature. I kept seeing this, this concept coming out, and, and it excited my interest because I never saw such an emphasis in, in all the teaching uh, that I grew up with. <clears throat> well, that's how Paul's ministry uh, that's how he was doing at the end. Now, <clears throat> let's look at the promise made to the kingdom of God, which I'm equating with the church as the mediatorial kingdom. There will be an absolute kingdom. We're moving in that direction. There will be a fulfillment, and that'll be absolute. But in the meantime, we have this mediatorial kingdom that gives a credible picture of the kingdom of God. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, another thing that I noticed is the epistles say very little about people going to heaven. <laughs> I challenge you to read the whole book of Ephesians and find one verse that talks about people going to heaven. Now, I believe people are going to go to heaven. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not what, that's not what they were trying to accomplish. They were trying to accomplish a picture of this kingdom. And Ephesians is all about God reconciling Jews and Gentiles, reconciling husbands and wives, reconciling parents and children, reconciling uh, employers and employees or masters and slaves, just reconcile to get this picture of how people live together in an equitable society. And when it functions the way it should, what is the church? Well, it talks about the tremendous power that Jesus demonstrated when he rose from the dead, and that power is given to the church. Look at this. Verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet... And gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And what is the church? It's his body. It's the fullness of the person who fills everything. Wow. I was sitting in a Bible school one time and my, my eye fell to that verse. And it hit me for the first time. The church is the fullness of the person who fills everything. I thought I was going to levitate and go off into flying through the air. I was so excited. And I still am. The church in many ways has disappointed me because it has not emphasized this. If we would ever get our heads around this, we would do all we can to make this church a beautiful picture of what it should be. We wouldn't go do something that we know is going to introduce some problem that's going to introduce some worldliness, that's going to introduce some pride, is going to cause division, is going to create issues. Oh, no. We would be like the oyster when a problem does come up. The oyster, a piece of sand gets in there, and there's blood and there's pain. What does the oyster do? 
it starts to deposit a, milk, a milky uh, substance around that little piece of quartz. And it just keeps depositing it till finally it has produced something that divers will race, risk their lives to, to get, a pearl. And as Peter Marshall, uh, chaplain of the Senate in the late 40s, he used to call that wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. <laughs> if we could just learn to take all our church problems and be, create wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. Start to picture what the church could be if everybody had that mentality. And said, look, it doesn't matter what happens to me, but it does matter what happens to the church. What effect will this have on the church? This is to be a beacon. The, the Anabaptists like to call the church a lantern of righteousness, shining out into the world. Here's this lantern of righteousness, this light shining out of that equitable society that you know every person that you're going to talk to wants that. That's the wonderful thing about this message. That's why they respond to people like Bernie Sanders. They want an equitable society, and the kingdom of God is the only genuine fulfillment of that. So anyway, oh, I got excited. I was a little bit like Gypsy Smith, that little gypsy boy that got saved out of the gypsy camp by one of the messages, I think, of John Wesley and preached the gospel to his way into his 80s. And somebody asked Gypsy Smith, I think it was his publisher, Fleming Revell, what is the secret of this passion that you have to preach the gospel and you just can't seem to quit. He said, I have never lost the wonder. I have never lost the wonder of what the church could be. And so I think if you preach the gospel of the kingdom in every sermon, Brother Nathan, you'll be preaching the gospel the way Jesus preached it because <laughs> that's how he preached. Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 19. I have another interesting observation here about this. I just want you to see that, <clears throat> that this, is, this is the message, a corporate expression. Just forget about the individualism. When you think about your own salvation, your own redemption, think about it in terms of it's a means to an end. For people to say, I'm going to be a Christian, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I've, the church has disappointed me and it's hurt me and I'm just going to go out in the mountain and I'm just going to be a Christian by myself. That's like saying... I'm going to play professional baseball, but I'll never join a team. <laughs> it's missed the whole point. The church is the point. Your salvation, your, I'm going to keep saying this, your redemption is a means to an end. The minute you make it an end in itself, something happens. In fact, I read a book years ago by Charles Finney called Lectures to Professing Christians. And he made this statement, you might not agree with it, it's a strong statement, but I'll give it the way he gave it and you can do, process it however you want to. I don't remember anything else he said in that book except this one thing hit me and I never forgot it. He said if your primary, pur primary purpose of being a Christian is to escape hell, you shall surely go there. And then he quoted the verse, he that shall save his life shall lose it. Now, a fear of hell and a desire to go to heaven that should somewhere be in our thinking. That's part of the gospel. That is part of, that's part of the message. I don't want to deny that. But he said, if your primary purpose, that's all you think about. There are people come to me and say, if I do this, will I go to hell? I'm tempted to say, you probably will. <laughs> Not because you did that, but because of your whole attitude toward God and the gospel. How many understand what I just said? 
That's the thinking of the individualistic save me gospel. What do I have to do to get to heaven? Just the bare minimum. I've had people actually ask me on the phone, what's the bare minimum I have to do to get to heaven? (laughs) Now, most of us won't say that, but there are many people who think that. All right. I have a wonderful problem going down rabbit trails. All right. If we, Acts chapter 19. Now, you remember this was the time when the city of Ephesus got all up in the air about Paul preaching the gospel. And they said he's turned the world upside down. And they screamed, greatest Diana of the Ephesians for two solid hours. And then the town clerk comes on the scene. And this is what he says. <clears throat> Uh, Well, he says many things, but I want to go down to verse 39. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Go home and look in your concordances. That word is ecclesia. Has anybody ever heard that word before? What is the ecclesia? We say it's the church. But if you'd have gone to a Greek city... And you just said, take me to the ecclesia, they'd have taken you to the town council. That's, that's the word that the, was borrowed by the believers to describe the church. It's a place where law is executed. In our own lives, we bring discipline to bear upon our lives. And by our witness, we bring a disciplined approach to life to bear upon the consciences of the people around us. Some people think the church is just a pep rally. Most people say ecclesia means an assembly of people. It does. But it's an assembly called out to govern. If you went to Congress and they were dismissing and you said to them, well, what did you do today? They said, oh, we just had a wonderful time. We just encouraged each other. We had a wonderful fellowship potluck meal. And uh, you would say, well, that's not why you were there. You were there to bring law to bear. And the ecclesia is here to bring God's law to bear upon our lives and create that equitable society. That's what the church is supposed to be. Called out to govern, first of all, our own lives and then the lives of the society around us. Now, this is in every heart. We all have a desire to have an influence. We all have a desire. In fact, that's when you get to the end of the Beatitudes, he says, that uh, we are going to be a light to the world. We are going to be a city set on a hill. We are going to be the salt of the earth. The desire to have influence is not a bad desire. Some people think it is. Oh, you want to be somebody. No. The desire to have influence is a good thing. But it only becomes bad when self gets mixed with it and we want to have influence to lift ourselves up. That's where the problem comes in. But that desire is in every heart. Some years ago, my wife and I traveled in England. There was one place I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Runnymede. Does anybody know what happened at Runnymede? It was in a meadow outside of England. That's where the Magna Carta was signed. Why? Because the people were not satisfied that one man was running the whole show. They wanted, there was a, and you find this all through societies. I remember when all this, uh, when the countries of Africa declared their independence, people wanted to have some say in the government. That's what the church is. It's a group of people who participate together. That desire is a good desire. Of course, in the world, it ends up with fighting and revolution and all that. That's the bad part. But this is the yearning of every heart to have influence 
to have an equitable society, to participate. When I describe the kingdom of God to people, and then they say, well, what kind of church do you go to? And then I, I describe our people and uh, how our people work together. If a barn burns down, they help each other build. If somebody dies, they're all there to comfort. And they, that's new to them. That's, you could just tell, you could just feel their heart reaching out to that because they don't know anything about that. Well, I would like to talk now just a little bit in closing, actually. The benefits of this kingdom focus. Number one, it eliminates individualism. It eliminates individualism. The save me gospel encourages individualism. It's just me. And all I think about is myself. It eliminates individualism. It makes my personal salvation a means to an end. It's not about me. It's about a cause greater than myself. Number two, it gives current relevance to the gospel. Here's a young person struggling with all kinds of temptations, like young people have tremendous hormonal impulses and struggles to keep themselves the way God wants them to be. And if it's a save me gospel, their goal is way out there 50 years in the future while they're struggling now without any present purpose. The kingdom gospel gives them a purpose to get in there and work and find ways to build up the church, get a choir together, get a group of Bible study people together, go out into the community. We're building up the church. It gives a present... uh, It gives a present... uh, (laughs) Goal, I I can't get the word I want. Purpose for here and now in the midst of all these struggles. It's not something that you have to hang on to because the the real focus of what you need to hang on for is way out there somewhere. There's an immediate cause. All right? Number three, it provides corporate strength for victory. I talk to many people who are struggling with all kinds of problems, and I say, Are you part of a church? No. You're not part of a church. Don't you know that you're not intended to fight your battles alone? God intended for us to be in this together, to have brothers to pray with us and teach us and admonish us and encourage us and be with us and walk with us and help us through our problems. We're fighting as an army. The Roman army won the world basically because they created the phalanx. The phalanx was, a, was a, a row of soldiers that even had their armor fastened together so that you could not penetrate that first row. And if you penetrated the first row, the second row was just like it. They stood as a wall. And that's how they won. Philippians pictures that. It pictures people standing together. And so this provides corporate strength for victory. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I know that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it unto the day of Christ. I used to read that and I think, how could he be so sure that they were going to finish well? I saw many people start out and not finish well. How was Paul so sure they were going to finish well? If you go down and read the chapter, he says, you are partakers of my grace. We are in fellowship together. That's why he was sure they were going to finish well, because they were in it together. So it promotes corporate strength for victory. Number four, it puts issues in perspective. Two-thirds of our calls, this will surprise you, two-thirds of our calls are about homosexuality. Can you believe that? 
We live in a very, very bad society. Amen. So what do you say to these people? Well, what I say is I paint a picture of the kingdom of God, what it's supposed to be, what kind of relationships. I talk about fornication, where the girl hopes that if she gives that to the boy, she'll get love and security, maybe marriage. That's what she's expecting. She doesn't get what she wants. He gets what he wants. And I start to picture all of this, and it makes it very clear why the life they're living is wrong. And after I'm finished describing the kingdom of God and how it was meant to function, how marriage was intended to be and what it was for, how sex was supposed to serve and all of that, then I say to them, do you think the lifestyle you just asked me about fits that picture? And invariably, they say no. See, it gives a perspective. And it's just not condemning, you know. It's, it's helping them see that they're living outside a beautiful perspective that God intended. And you can discuss divorce, remarriage. You can discuss non-resistance. You can discuss all of those things in the perspective of the kingdom of God, and it all makes sense. Number five, it inspires a desire to show a sharp contrast to the world. It gives us a sense of excitement about being different. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony in the middle of a Greek civilization. Philippi was in Macedonia. That was the uh, kingdom of Alexander the Great and his father Philip. And it was a Roman colony. So if you walked toward Philippi, you heard the Greek language, you saw Greek customs, you saw Greek dress, you heard Greek laws being uh, carried out. The minute you stepped inside that city, it was totally different. The language was Latin, the laws were Roman, the customs were Roman, the dress was Roman. Do you think those people said, oh, it's such a burden to be a Roman in the middle of all this Greek civilization? No. They said, we are Romans. And if we ever get the concept of the kingdom of God, that's how people will, they will feel privileged to be part of this. This is a rare privilege. A rare privilege. A colony of heaven on earth. In fact, I had a man say to me, oh, they say that uh, Philippi was Rome away from Rome. This is heaven away from heaven. <laughs> When I was describing this, one time a lady said to me, oh, so it's heaven on earth. I said, yeah, that is what it is. Would she say that if she came to visit this congregation? I kind of think she would. I think I know you folks well enough. But make it better. <laughs> make it your passion to make this a pristine perfect. It'll never be perfect, but that should be your passion, to make this congregation a perfect example of heaven on earth. Number six. It's a motivation to build strong churches. I've been talking about that. People will be very slow to do anything to cause a division or to cause a defilement or to cause a, a problem in the church. In fact, the Reformed Mennonites, you don't know those people probably. It's a very small group. They're one of those only churches. Uh, I said to Edsel Birds one time, I said, do they have any church rules? He said, no, they don't. And I said, well, Suppose one of them got a TV 
I mean, is that against? No, he said, that wouldn't be against the rules. I said, well, how does this work? He said, well, if you ask one of them about whether they would get a TV, they said, oh, no, I would never do that. That would spoil the unity of our walk with Jesus. They are very jealous about their congregations. If you're the only church, you have to be. But anyway, <laughs> I'm not saying we should be the only church, but we should have that kind of jealousy. Oh, no, I would not do that. That would spoil things. It's a motivation to build strong churches, not quick to leave, but to stop and, like the oyster, create wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. Not quick to, to, to defile the church. Selfish decisions are, by the way, they ask me on the phone often, what is sin? Our world, do you know our world doesn't know what sin is? They think sin is murder and uh, something awful. But they don't think they sin. Most of them say they're good people. They don't sin. And so they often have me defining what sin is. And I used to give them a theological definition. And then we'd have some big discussion and disagreement until it was all done. And so I decided one day I'm going to sit down and I'm going to find one word that defines sin. Would somebody tell me what you think that word would be? Define sin with one word. Evil. What? Evil. Yes. I think I heard it. Self. Selfishness. That is what sin is. That is what it is. And actually that helps me. Because sometimes I'm selfish. And right away I know it's sin. I didn't used to maybe think so much about that. But now I realize when I'm selfish, that's sin. And uh, yeah, the church, our late Bishop Lynn Martin used to say frequently, you be careful how you treat the church. The church is the apple of God's eye. And when you do something to spoil the church, you've just stuck your finger in God's eye. So it's a motivation to be very careful in our church experience that we do nothing but edify and never to defile or divide or cause problems. And finally, it keeps the focus on the king. You see, sometimes we sort of get our focus on doctrines, and we should talk about teachings of various sorts and so on, but the focus should always be on the king. See, there in Revelation, it says in Ephesians, it says the Ephesians, oh, they were zealous in keeping their church pure. They tried the heretics and threw them out, and they were just zealous to keep their church the way it should be. But he said, you left your first love. Their first love was Christ. But now it had shifted to something good. It's good to keep the church pure. But the focus wasn't on Jesus anymore. It was on keeping the church pure. And a kingdom focus keeps the focus on the king. And that's where it always should be. What does the king want? What does the king say? How can I please the king? You know, there's a difference between obeying and pleasing. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. So what's the difference between pleasing God and obeying God? Well, parents know if the parents go to town and they say to their uh, children, now before I get home, I want to, your, your bedrooms straightened up and I want the dishes washed and I want the floor swept and so on. And the children do all that. The parents come home. They've obeyed. The parents are happy. But if after they've done all that, someone, one of the children says, you know, I heard dad say that the garden needs weeding. And it's a hot day. And I hate to weed. But we're going to weed the garden. Because we want to see the smile on dad's face when he comes home. 
That's pleasing. That's pleasing. And our focus as a congregation should be to put a smile on God's face. In fact, David wanted to do that. He wanted to build a temple. And God said to him through Nathan, he said, well, did I ever say I wanted a temple? He gave commands to build a tabernacle and elaborate descriptions of how it should be, but he never described how to build a temple. Never said he wanted a temple. And basically what he said to David was, you know, David, I am so pleased that you wanted to build me a temple. That I'm not going to let you build me a temple, I'm going to build you one. And that's where he gave the promise that always there would be somebody from the seed of David sitting on the throne of Israel. God loves when our passion is to please him and to please the king. Well, it's a wonderful thing to be part of this kingdom, and I want to close just to remind you that it is an everlasting kingdom. We're watching our society crumble. We're we're watching the demise of Western civilization, and it's happening faster than any of us ever expected it to happen, but this kingdom will not. This kingdom will be here after everything else crumbles. You know, a thousand years ago, the gospel came to Russia. In 1917, Marxism, that horrible doctrine came to Russia. And in 1987, they celebrated the 70th anniversary of Marxism. And they marched their armies down through the streets and they brought their tanks and they celebrated how wonderful Marxism was in 1987. One year later, Marxism collapsed. But in 1988, the church celebrated the 1,000th anniversary of the church in Russia. It wasn't the perfect church, but it was still there. And there were still genuine Christians, even though much of the Christianity there was perverted. I think of the song that says, Oh, where are kings and empires now of all that went and came? But Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I thank you tonight for the kingdom of God. Oh, God, forgive us for a selfish concept of the gospel that it's all about me It's all about getting to heaven. I just pray help us to develop a passion for a corporate expression of your kingdom on this earth. A little taste of heaven for people to see and yearn and join. Bless this congregation. Lord, we've always heard good reports of this congregation, but I know nothing is ever perfect. Help them to continue to pursue and make a good congregation even better and help them to have the passion to demonstrate the light of the, of the gospel in a corporate body to the surrounding world. In Jesus, and I pray that many people will inquire and want to become part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.